Uh, for the boys and girls here, a lot of children in the uh, congregation this afternoon, maybe you can think of two questions, boys and girls, uh, as I preach. How is Jesus a sacrifice, and how are we sacrifices? Just to keep it real short and to the point. If you can think about those questions, boys and girls, maybe talk about it with your parents afterwards. I think that would be nice. For our text uses that word, brothers and sisters. It calls us to present our bodies as sacrifices to God. When you hear that, that sounds like a tall task, doesn't it? Who can do this? In pagan religion, and unfortunately also sometimes in the history of God's people Israel, parents offered their children's bodies as sacrifices to the gods. And that sounds so extreme to us because it is. Why would somebody do that? Well, as we think of this, why would somebody do this? I would say there's maybe two reasons, fear and hope. Fear and hope. First, let's say a a bit about fear. A pagan would do this horrible thing because they have a fear of the natural world. The natural world is unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. Just think think of a farmer. You know, and then he's thinking, well, what's going to happen to me? I don't know the future, and I can't control it. What's going to happen to my family? And what's going to happen to my crops? You know, all of his life, it's filled with uncertainty. And so there's this natural fear built into him. And, and there's also fear of supernatural causes that are behind the things that happen in this life, the gods, you know, so to speak. They're also unpredictable. And this pagan that we're thinking of wouldn't want to upset them. So that's part of the motivation for offering this sacrifice. But also there's hope on their part. They have a hope in these these gods, this supernatural power as well, that if they make this offering, if they make this sacrifice, then the gods will protect them and will prosper them. And these are powerful enough motivators to offer sacrifices, even the sacrifice, shockingly, of their own child. Well, what's our motivation for offering sacrifices to God? Could be similar, could be fear, built on fear, a sense of the supernatural power of God, the fear of punishment, maybe, that ultimately uh, this divine being will cast some people into hell because of sin and, and, you know, the whole story there, and so it could be fear. Or we could also have hope, similar to the pagan, That if we offer ourselves as sacrifices to God and we do enough for Him, we will receive blessing in return. Those could be our motivations. But notice what our text says. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Our motivation for sacrificing ourselves is His mercy. And that is a mercy that is born out of His love. Because of the great love with which He has loved us, He made us alive in Christ, Scripture says in Ephesians 2. And so we are meant to be living sacrifices. This is the call to us. That, that means two things. First of all, living sacrifices. We won't be put to death like animal sacrifices or pagan child sacrifices. No, this is a different kind of sacrifice we're being called to. It's offering God a holy life. And second thing, to be a living sacrifice communicates that we are alive in Him. We are living in Him. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this great hope, which stems from His great love, 
This is our motivator, and this is a more powerful motivator to holy living than anything else. And so far for introduction, the theme of our message then this afternoon is this, that Christ Jesus' priestly work is a sacrifice of love through which He delivers us and intercedes for us. And then similarly, we fulfill our priestly calling when we sacrifice ourselves in thankful love. And so in that, you heard three distinct points that Jesus delivers us, He intercedes for us, and then we'll talk about ourselves and our priestly calling. Well, as we enter into this, why the need for sacrifice in the first place? What does a sacrifice achieve? Well, if we just take that word and look at it generally, we can say that through sacrifice comes accomplishment or success or reward. I'm thinking of the ways we use this word naturally in our day-to-day. You work hard, you give up or sacrifice time and money and effort, blood, sweat, and tears, and the result is you become really good at something. Or we could use the word sacrifice with this nuance, release, escape, or rescue. Right? You, uh, this is appropriate for, for, for what we know as winter peg in BC. Forgive me, but that's the name we use. You, you shovel snow off the sidewalk in front of your neighbor's house, and as you're doing that kind deed, you, you're sacrificing your energy. You might be sacrificing your lower back. Maybe your, your wear and tear on your snow shovel. And as a result of that sacrifice, your neighbor is released from their need to shovel it himself or herself. And they're spared the tax on their body and their equipment. These are ways we can use this word sacrifice. Spiritually speaking, through sacrifice comes deliverance. Deliverance from what? From sin. From sin, from from the power of sin, which trips us up while we live and puts us on the path to death. And from slavery to sin and the one who tempts us towards sin. And this is so important. Sin is a reality. This is, this is something we can't avoid. It's a huge problem. It's the problem of life. We were made to live in relationship with God. And what sin does is it separates us from God. The relationship is ruined because of it. And so whatever other problems we will have, this is the biggest problem we have to deal with. Now, overcoming sin, gaining freedom from sin, being redeemed, comes through repairing the relationship. And we do this by way of repentance and restitution. In other words, being sorry for sin and then doing something to make everything better. That's that's what we can do about sin if we're just thinking about ourselves for a moment. There's obviously more to say. We're sorry for our sin, it's repentance, and we do something to make it better, restitution. And through that repentance and restitution come reconciliation and restoration. But how do we do this exactly? What's the mechanism for this? And the answer to that is sacrifice. Sacrifice which leads to deliverance. And now everybody understands this instinctively. You know, every person that you meet out there in your, in your week, they understand this because we all have a sense of the divine within us. We find this in Romans 1 in its most basic form, but Romans 2 also says that God's law is written on our heart. So the moral law of God in its most basic form, people know deep down. You suppress that truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1, but we know it. And so we know also then that sin separates us from God and leads to death. 
And so every society across the world, across time, across place, has offered sacrifices to try to overcome this, that repentance and, and restitution. And again, we mentioned ancient pagan religions, but you can see it, it's, it's universal. Often these sacrifices involve blood, and that's because blood is a representation of life. And so we have, again, this innate recognition that, that death is a result of sin, a consequence of sin, and so in order to live and not die, which is what we all want, something must give its lifeblood for us. Something must die in our place. And that's the biblical understanding as well. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, when Hebrews 9 says that, the law, uh, the law is a reference to the entire Old Covenant with its detailed sacrificial system. You can read about that especially in Leviticus. And at the heart of the annual Israelite calendar of rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices is the Day of Atonement. Now, that word atonement, that really is what this is all about, coming to a place where we can be at one, atone, at one with God. See, the emphasis on the relationship. Sin is broken it. How do we repair it? And so in order for the Israelites to successfully complete the sacrifice in a way which is pleasing to God, a high priest is needed. And so we read about this in many chapters, but Exodus 28 is one example, and Leviticus 16 describes a day of atonement as well. And we see there the role of the high priest. We see that originally the man needed to be consecrated, that is, he was ordained, to the task of being a high priest and anointed, which, which symbolically showed he was set apart for that. And then before actually making the sacrifices, he had to bathe in water and he had to wear special garments of clothing. Included among these garments was a breastplate, a breastpiece of judgment, the breastpiece of judgment. This is a special item of clothing. On this breastpiece, there were f- four rows of three stones, so 12 in total. And Exodus 28, verse 21 says, There shall be twelve stones with their names, according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And then, a little further in Exodus 28, we read of the significance of this. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now what's the main takeaway from that? It's that the high priest represented the people before God. He was their representative. He was their mediator. And this breast piece was a a symbol of this reality that as the high priest went in and mediated before God, it's as if the people were there with him, as if they were in him. And so the people were purified, not just the high priest, you understand. These sacrifices were truly pleasing to God. They were an indication of the faith of Israel. And they helped maintain positive relations, therefore, between God and His people. That's all good. But their effect was temporary. They needed to be repeated year after year after year. And their effect was limited in addition to being temporary. Well, it did please God. It didn't satisfy His wrath against sin. 
We read from Hebrews 10, which says, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so even though this was commanded by God and it was right for the people to do, it, it was just a shadow of what was to come. Now I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine the animals, these bulls and goats, imagine they had a choice somehow whether or not to be sacrificed. Do you think they'd go for it? Would they? No. Imagine this. Imagine that the priest could make a choice to offer himself as a sacrifice instead of the animals. Do you think he'd do that? Well, no, he wouldn't. And now, unlike the animal, which is just an animal, imagine someone in a position of authority and power. And now, also imagine that unlike the priest, this person in a position of authority and power is totally pure with no need for the sacrifice himself. Do you think the person would go for it? No way. Romans 5 verse 7 does say, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And so there may seem to be something of an exception there. But you know, human nature doesn't take us in this direction. The other day, I was talking with my sons about the parable of the workers who all get paid the same. You remember that one? They work different hours of the day. They all get the same pay. And Jesus ends that saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So I asked my boys, they're nine and seven, about it, and we talked about the, the value of, of being last and being willing to, to prefer the other, you know, I didn't use that word, but to, to put the other before themselves. And so we had this nice conversation at their level, and then after we prayed, they went and they fought over who could get ice cream first out of the freezer. See, naturally, we don't want to prefer others. We don't want to give up our rights. We don't want to give way to other people. We don't even want to sacrifice little things for others, much less our life. But God did. God did. Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so what we see in this is that the greatest became the least. The first became the last. He recognizes the blood of bulls and goats can't do it. That it wasn't the faithful performance of a ritual that was needed, but the faithful obedience of a life. And so he gave his own life, his own precious blood. In the person of the Son, God himself came down to earth. The second person of the Trinity existing from before all creation, living among us as a man. Taking the words of Psalm 40 on his lips and in his heart toward the Father. As we read it earlier, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Right, and this is his posture. He's open to the Father. He's saying, I have come to do your will. He's saying, I am totally available. I am completely at your disposal. And God shows his love for us, his great love for us in all of this that He willingly chose to sacrifice Himself for us when we had nothing to commend ourselves before Him, nothing within us that suggested we might actually be worthy of being sacrificed for. 
It was only His love that encouraged Him to do this. And so as our great high priest Jesus showed this love so powerfully, as He performed the will of God on behalf of us, His people, and He ministered to the people of God through His teaching and His healing and His compassion, and He suffered for the people of God in His humiliation and His temptations, the opposition that He faced, ultimately the crucifixion. It was for the joy set before Him, Hebrews 12 says, that He endured all things. And that joy is eternal life in fellowship with us. And so the result of this work of Jesus, this high priestly work, is that you and I are pure in Him. He's cleansed you from sin, removing it all from you. And it's been cast into the sea to be remembered no more. What a tremendous thought. I was just talking with somebody this week, and they said, imagine you could only, you only commit one sin a day. Just one. Be pretty good, right? Over the course of a lifetime, that might be 27,000 sins per person. Add it up. It's a lot of sin. Cast into the sea to be remembered no more. Fully atoning for every bitter thought, every evil deed that you have done. All of it borne on Him at the cross so that you don't need to bear it any longer. And then Jesus presents you before the Father completely blameless and totally acceptable. How can God do this wonderful thing? How can God say that the work of Jesus is for us? After all, Jesus is the one who did it. Isn't it for Him? How, how does it become ours? Well, through our identification with Him. Through our identification with Him. When we repent of our sin and when we trust in Jesus then what we're saying is that we want to find our identity in Him rather than in ourselves. We want to find true life in His life rather than in going things our own way. And when we do this, we're brought into a union with Him so that it's as if we were with Him when He perfectly performed the will of God in His living. And it's as if we were with Him when He suffered God's wrath in His dying. Right? Just like that high priest, remember, he wore the 12 stones on his breast piece, and so his atoning work was reckoned as if all Israel had done it. So also Jesus, we could say, had us in his heart, on his heart, in his dying and in his living, so that his atoning work is applied to us. And so we confess, as if we had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. What mercy. Do you know this mercy? Have you experienced its sweetness in your life? Well, when we know our sin, when we truly know our sin, when we feel its burden and we feel its severity, and we don't, we don't try to hide that or suppress that, and then we come to Christ and we acknowledge the, the greatness of His sacrifice for us, then, then His mercy to us is sweet and precious. What mercy God has shown to us, beloved, in Christ. And he continues to show us his mercy as he continues his high priestly work. His sacrificial work is complete. He has delivered us through that work that he has done. But his, his intercessory work or his work of intercession is ongoing. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, he lives to make intercession for us. 
So having successfully completed the sacrifice, Jesus rose from the dead, and then He ascended into heaven, and that's where He is now. It's where He remains. He's in the heavenly temple as the great high priest. Hebrews 9 verse 24 says, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. I used the word shadow earlier, shadow or copies of the true things. But He's entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What does He do on our behalf? What's His work of intercession? It's to advocate for us before the Father. It's to petition the Father on our behalf, to guarantee that the Father hears our petition as we bring it to Him. And Hebrews 7, you you heard it, it, He lives to do this. That's to say this goes hand in hand with His sacrificial work. They're together. He is the way we first come to the Father, but He continues to be the way to the Father. This is what a faithful high priest does. So He lives to do this. He also loves to do this. Romans 8 tells us that God sacrificed His Son because of His love for us, and and that also speaks to Christ's love for us that He would sacrifice Himself. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful words of promise that we need to remind ourselves of constantly. And so for many people, this is a most precious part of Scripture, Romans 8. Does it not benefit you so much, brothers and sisters, to know that Christ lives and loves to make intercession for you? There's so much benefit in this. We can be assured that God hears us when we consider this. We can be assured that God hears us because we know that He hears His dearly beloved Son, His Son who is completely faithful. And because He is the completely faithful Son, the anointed one of God, the Father said to Him, Psalm 2, which speaks of Him being the anointed, the Father said to Him, ask of Me and I will give you the nations as a possession, as an inheritance. Just ask, and I will give. Well, if that's true, how then could God reject Jesus' intercession for us? Jesus only represents causes that are righteous, right? And in His his purity and His faithfulness, He's not going to represent a cause that isn't righteous. And we are His cause because He's decided that we are His cause. And He's made us eligible to be His cause. And so there He is interceding for us, advocating for us. And He's always doing this. Remember, He lives to do it. And He's, and he's doing it before a gracious and merciful Father then who delights to hear Him, who delights to answer His beloved Son. His Father, our Father our gracious and merciful Father. And so we can come to God with confidence. Yes, your request might be a big one. Yes, you might be acutely aware of certain sins that you're struggling with. But as we look to Him in faith, 
in this identification with Christ. There is no righteous request that is too bold. There is no sin too great to forgive because Jesus' blood speaks for us. And if God has already given us Christ, will He not also give us all things needful for body and soul? And so we go to His throne and we anticipate it to be a throne of grace. We have confidence in that, that we will find the mercy and grace that we need to help us in our time of need. And so if you are struggling, brothers and sisters, let your thoughts go to Christ's work of intercession. Because when you realize that your prayers aren't just coming from you, that He's also bringing them before the Father, that He's making your good desires and causes His own, then that will stimulate you, that will encourage you to lift your prayers to God. God is merciful. The Father will hear you for the sake of Christ. And this brings us back to, for our third point, Romans 12, verse 1. In view of His mercies, we present ourselves as living sacrifices of thankfulness to God. There are no more priests in the old sense. I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor or a minister. Um, Christ has offered the ultimate sacrifice. But we are all priests in a new sense. Isaiah 61 verse 6 says this, In the fullness of time, when the anointed one comes, you will be called priests of the Lord. So you're a priest of the Lord. What is the new priestly sacrifice you are to offer? Well, it is the sacrifice of a thankful life. Thankful for His love through which He has delivered us and intercedes for us, we lovingly offer our lives to Him in service. We love because He first loved us. So what does this look like more specifically? It looks like taking on the the ethos of Philippians 2, if you're familiar with that passage. It speaks of valuing others above yourself. It speaks of valuing our union with Christ and the fellowship that we have in the Spirit above all else. And if we take on that, that ethos, then that's necessarily going to involve sacrifice using our skills and our abilities for others and for God, giving of our time and our effort, spending our money, letting go of our desires. And in all these things, we're meant to have a priestly attitude, this attitude of openness. Remember, I did this earlier for Christ. I've come to do your will, O God. Same kind of thing for us. Look, here I am. I surrender myself entirely to your service. I am yours Use me, for I offer myself to you as a sacrifice of praise. And the idea being that we are totally available to God. We are putting ourselves completely at His disposal. And that may seem a little um, lowly. Our, our full selves, right? Like offering our full selves. But, but if you think that way, who, who were we, right? Think of that. Who were we? And who are we now? Because of the sacrifice that that God has made for us, so much has changed. In Christ, we have been remade. We are new creations in Christ, part of the new creation. And so since this is the gift we have received, since this is our inheritance, we can give of ourselves. And then rather than having to focus on our need to be filled by others, because we have something, some lack within us, we can pour out of His fullness that is in us, the overflow of His grace and His strength and His acceptance and His love. 
and we can live out this priestly calling in every realm of our lives. There's no area that this doesn't include. We can worship God by offering ourselves in our marriage. I talked with a man this morning whose wife had a stroke, and he's visiting her three times a day at her mealtimes, and he's helping her. It's a beautiful thing. He's offering himself for the sake of his wife. We can worship God by offering ourselves in our families, with our friends, even in society, but especially in the church. And so we're so thankful, aren't we, when we see evidence of this in the church. I certainly am as a pastor when I see this in my church, and I'm sure you are too when you see this being lived out in your church. When as members here you are using your skills and your abilities, that you're giving your time and your effort for God and for other people, that you're spending your money, that you're letting go of your desires, if that's appropriate, all for the sake of the Lord and each other. And then when we do this, it's like Psalm 133. We began the service singing that. That psalm uses the language of priestly anointing to express the blessing of the Lord on our lives and the abundance that our God gives to us when we are living in His will. I'll read that psalm again. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. That's a picture of great abundance. For there the Lord bestows His blessing, even life forevermore. And so to wrap up, there are no more earthly priests. We've said this. We've seen this. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's our constant intercessor. He's our only and most perfect mediator. And yet we also are priests, all of us, regardless of our special office in church, the general office of believer includes a priestly calling. We're part of a new temple, not built by human hands, the church of God. And we're called to offer sacrifices in the new temple, not to atone for ourselves or for others, but to embrace His atonement, to live as those who have received all things. He gave His life for us that we might give our lives to Him, a sacrifice of love for us that we might live in love for Him and for others. May God be pleased to work in us by His Spirit. Amen.